This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm Amira. I'm your host for this week. Joining me are Shireen, Jessica, and Lindsay. We'll be talking about data in sports. The lack of data is weaponized as a reason not to take a chance on women's sports. But Of course, burning some things. On Thursday, we'll have a great interview. Brenda talks to U.S. Women's National Team member and new member of Portland Thorns, Crystal Dunn. And we are in high spirits. It is a festive time of year. Happy Diwali for all of those who celebrate. I am just going into the last quarter of 2020 full of exuberance. And I'm happy to be here with my co-host today to dive in to some things, burn some stuff down, and lift up some torchbearers doing the work. Before we get into all that, I had to jump on the bandwagon that's trending on Twitter right now. And I wanted to ask y'all, what feels like a sport but isn't? Uh, so I, I did I said did say this on Twitter, but to me the first thing I thought of was when you are trying to pick out which grocery line to go into <laughs> to see which one's the fastest. <laughs> and you have to do so many calculations in your head. And for me, I always lose this sport because I always end up behind the coupon lady, no matter what. It's always the coupon lady. I'm like the New York Jets of this sport, but it is a sport. <laughs> Shereen, I am. What, what I am. That? I am the coupon lady. Uh, <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. I have the app on my phone, like a hundred percent. I press oh, um, <laughs> So, for me, a sport which has become quite exhausting and rigorous is booking athletes for interviews who are wrapped by really difficult people to get a hold of. So you check in, and like your fifth email to check in is like just circling back and I'm like synonyms for circling back because like how many <laughs> fucking times do you say I want to talk to this athlete will you reply to my email no shade for anyone so I'm currently losing at this sport <laughs> <laughs> well my sport is parallel parking particularly in Philadelphia and Fun fact, when I was a tour guide at Temple University, this used to be my joke when I was giving tours. I would say I major in history and I minor in competitive parking, um, parallel parking. Um, And it's so true. And it's not a surprise when Parking Wars, the show, was like based in Philadelphia. I was like, uh, yes, because it is cutthroat. And now 
I have not practiced in a while. <laughs> There's no traffic here. Um, anyways, Jessica, what do you have? Well, I once paid $25 to park downtown in Philadelphia because I was trying to get to a studio to do outside the lines. And it was so stressful. I ran in, they put the earbud, like they put me on immediately and I spoke for 30 seconds and I paid $25. (laughs) So I I feel that. Um, My thing that feels like a sport but isn't is trying to take off my sports bra after I've finished a workout. That is like, if you've ever experienced it, you know what I mean. And if you haven't, it's just the most difficult physical thing. I have the Nike Fly Knit now, which is great, but super compact. And so it's a whole thing. Yeah, this is the um, biggest like ringing endorsement for my my uh, Peloton friends for years have been trying to move to the SheFit bra, which is zip in the front. Yeah. So like mm. you just like unzip it and you're free. <laughs> free the titties. <laughs> which, yeah, that's like that. That's a good selling point. For our uh, patrons, I spoke with Melissa Doldrin, my friend, and Mal is actually a sports bra model for Nixwear, and they one of the bras they have is Zip. And I mean, I have concerns about the Zip, like when you're all sliming, you take it off, does it hurt? Like, how does that work? But I don't know. We could talk about this forever. So <laughs> lots of things that feel like sports that aren't sports. <laughs> and then we have actual sports, and we will dive into those now. What to do about data. Don't run away from your radio. Don't turn the channel. Don't pause the (laughs) podcast. When you hear data in sports, I promise you it's worthy of continuing to listen. I used to be that person. If you start talking stats to me, my eyes would glaze over and I would be like, it's part of sports that I just don't want to engage in. But we want to take it up today to think about how we use and misuse numbers and statistics and all of this data in tech around sports. And I'll start about when this came to my mind. I, despite not caring about numbers in sports, I realized how much we consume them, how much they bake into our mind. And I realized this on election week when I was doing the like, and if Biden wins this, how many paths to victory does he le- have left, et cetera, et cetera. And all I could remember in my mind was that one statistic that went up that compared the percentage chance of winning that Trump had in 2016 to the percentage chance of winning that the Patriots had when they were down with the Falcons in that Super Bowl. And how that's just kind of baked into my head. So I'm doing this election week, like math or whatever. And at one point, I was like, okay, if they call Nevada for Biden, what's left? And then it was like, Joe Biden has 28 paths to victory and Trump has three. And I immediately was like, 28 and three? It's a curse. It's not going to... Like, I freaked out. I freaked out so much. I immediately like exited out of the New York like Times like little model or whatever. And I realized that that data point had been stuck in the back of my head and produced all of these feelings of terror and has just become a shorthand for like these statistical anomalies, et cetera, et cetera. That even for somebody who said, I don't care about data in sports, it's still there. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to throw it to y'all to think about the ways we how did we get here? How did we get to a place where it's so baked in? And how do we find both comfort and terror in these numbers surrounding the sports that we uh, engage in? So 
Jess, I want to toss it to you first because I know that you were recently watching a movie that purported <laughs> to cover some of the origins of this kind of rise in data in sport. Yes. So even though I'm not a baseball person, I am here to talk about Moneyball, which I feel like is really a quintessential example of the way that numbers have entered and altered the way sport happens. But yes, I did watch the first half of Moneyball, the movie with Brad Pitt this week. So I now am an expert on it. So the idea of Moneyball, which is the title of a book by Michael Lewis, is that baseball general managers, when they build their teams, they use stats over and above the information that they would get from scouts to build that team. They see players as assets and they use cold numbers to determine the best way to fill the holes on their teams. They pick up players who are undervalued. They sell off overvalued players. And in theory, they then are winning baseball games for less money. And this has become an entire thing. The upside here, and this is a real one, is that players who otherwise wouldn't get a chance get chances to play in the majors, right? The downside is that it really perpetuates the idea that players are cogs in a system. They're like changeable stocks in a portfolio, right? The men who do this are from Wall Street, right? It's very much that. It's dehumanizing. It's callous. It's how we got to the point where a player like Roberto Osuna, who was suspended for, I believe, 75 games for violating the MLB's domestic violence policy, he became what they call a quote-unquote distressed asset because he was still really good at the thing that he was really good at. But a lot of teams, either for moral reasons or just because of the PR risk, would not pick him up. So the Astros brought him in on 2017. And this phrase around him became very famous because the guy who was the general manager at the time of the Astros was Jeff Luno, who had come directly from Wall Street. That was like his entire resume. And so they were really thinking of these people as just these movable objects and that they could place in and then they could justify it based on that. So Asuna was justifiable because his value, the return on his money value was so good for them. I feel like that's such a obvious place to start when we talk about how like it has really shifted the way that baseball works these days. Absolutely. And it's not just shifted the way baseball has worked, but as you know, these metrics and these stats have become so integral to many sports, it's also shifted the way we cover and who is employed by sports. Lindsay, what does this tell us, right, about the rise of even people working in and around sports? Yeah, I would say it's had a huge impact. There was this really fascinating article by June Lee on ESPN over the summer, and I'm just going to quote him here. He said, the rise of analytics has also resulted in another massive shift and influx of white male graduates of Ivy League schools and other prestigious universities into teams front offices. In a data analysis conducted by ESPN, the percentage of Ivy League graduates holding an organization's top baseball operations decision making position has risen from just 3% in 2001 to 43% today. While the percentage of graduates from U.S. top 25 colleges, both universities and liberal arts schools, holding the same positions has risen from 24% to 67%. And this coincides um, not coincidentally, I would say, with the drop in former players running front offices over the same period from 37% to 20%. And the percentage of minorities running front offices has risen, but only from 3% to 10%. So those numbers are staggering and I think show how, you know, uh, I love stats. I think stats are great, but I think they have certainly 
changed who we think of now as sports experts and who we think of as bringing value to sporting organizations in a way that does not really um, help diversity and reinforces stereotypes and keeps power in the hands of those who already have so much power and so many options. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 bleeds into sports media as well in terms of what is seen as having statistical knowledge and having value in terms of knowledge about sports and those goalposts keep moving. And and, um, so it's interesting to me, Lindsay, you say, I love statistics. And I know Shireen has a very different (laughs) view off the bat of statistics. Shireen, can you unpack a little bit why, you know, what, how, when I know when I suggested this topic to you, you were like, right away. And I want to unpack that first initial reaction. Well, I'll, I'll preface all of this with saying I don't love numbers. It's just not a thing with me. I don't do numbers so we like we I don't speak the same language as numbers and like I get except coupon except coupon well yeah that's different though that's like a system um, sorry <laughs> it's like disruption in the system um so I get irritated with the idea that understanding and knowing stats is the metric of being able to be knowledgeable in sports and like what does being a sports expert entail and then why does this exclude people who look at systems within sports which is very much what my analysis is and some academics and journalists can't rattle off stats necessarily but i think their lenses and their frameworks into looking at things and talking about things is absolutely imperative here and so we can talk they can talk about context history problematic policy etc cetera, etc cetera. and on this show obviously we stand sports historians and sports sociologists cultural anthropologists who deal with this so i feel like lindsay said it's a matter of gatekeeping and it's a part of the industry that i think i find tiresome and as much as i don't do numbers I know that this is a thing with sports people, and I often manipulate it to my advantage when I'm debating with people on the validity of women in sports to begin with. So I'll use stats from WNBA, WNSL, the viewership, because, you know, then to hit back at people saying that women's sports don't matter and there's no interest in them when in fact there is. And I'll start presentations or, you know, Twitter fights with the most watched match in soccer history in the United States was the U.S. Women's National Final in 2015 still. And the numbers don't lie. So I struggle with the numbers being the be-all and end-all of legitimacy in the sports world. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's so true. I remember when I was younger and really obsessed with Emmett Smith, part of what I did was commit to memory all of his college stats so that I could go toe-to-toe with all of the boys that I, you know, played football with and ran around with because then how could they doubt me? And the thing was, it didn't matter, right? Like, it it doesn't matter that I could answer all of those questions. They still, then they would just move the goalposts. But Shireen, you also bring up women's sports and data. And I think that this is a really good segue into talking about the problem of not having enough data when it has become such an important uh, feature of sports. So Lindsay, what do you see about how the lack of data and numbers on women's sports has perhaps hindered their growth? Yeah, I mean, the lack of stats in women's sports is a huge problem. Um, Jacob Mox wrote a great article for Power Plays about this in the spring called, you know, Sexism and Statistics is Hurting Women's Sports. 
But, you know, we've had this entire statistical revolution, you know, that started with MLB, as Jess said, and bled over. It's now NBA and NFL, and it's really skipped over women's sports. And for me, I'm not a super stats nerd. I'm not great with numbers either, Shereen, but I do love how good statistics can be used in storytelling. They help you find stories. If I'm looking through good statistics, I can figure out what questions to ask a player, where they're hurting, where they're going well. You know, you can find ways to tell stories about teams and ask questions about certain things. But it's such a barrier in women's sports. One thing that Jacob Mock said, so he was using a play index in basketball reference. And he said that in just 30 seconds, he found that the NBA team with the most made threes since 2012 was Houston with 8,203. So he did that in just 30 seconds, but it took him nearly 10 minutes and he had to use Excel. So himself manipulate the data to find out who the WNBA's leading team in threes was since 2012, which was Seattle. And who's going to go in and put that work There are a lot of great groups. First of all, shout out Jackie at Sports Reference, who has really helped them expand what they are doing with women's sports. And I know by talking with people from the Sports Reference that they are working on making changes and adding things in, but there's a long way to go. A lot of grassroots organizations have been picking up the slack where others have lacked. I want to shout out Across the Timeline and her hoop stats for filling in the gap when it comes to women's basketball statistics. Those two are things that I, not just myself, like ESPN commentators, Rebecca Lobo uses this data to tell stories during broadcast. And of course, we have Howard Megdol, who's salary reporting over at The Next, formerly High Post Hoops, you know, has really helped tell more WNBA stories because he he's able to anonymously collect all the salary info and contract info because that's information that the WNBA and also the NWSL doesn't make public. You have to really dig for this information in a way you don't in men's sports. And just like I said, what makes me sad is how it limits the ability to tell stories. And that's where it really makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting. Like, I always am intrigued by Howard's point, like, or about the lack of transparency from some of these leagues. And I think that, I don't know, this is my interpretation. I'd be interested to see, you know, what you guys think about it. But that there's a way in which, because numbers can be used so quickly to be a battering ram against the leagues as they're trying to grow it, that lack of transparency around these salaries, right, is seen as like a way of protecting the league, despite the fact that it would open up ways to not only tell these stories that Lindsay's saying, but it helps for juxtapositions and comparisons. Like we shouldn't only have to try to go find it to make a meme about how much Sue Bird has made versus LeBron James over their 17 years, you know, career. But I think it's one of those like double-edged sword you know, in a way, because you can see that they're trying to be protective, but lack of transparency in this world of sports with data can actually really, really be harmful, as you've said, Lynn. Yeah, and I think it's 
either you're a professional sport or you're not. Do you know what I mean? Like, and part of that Mm. is there's going to be some bad stories. There's going to be some embarrassment, but like, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. You know, I know former women's world cup stars who weren't on the national team anymore, who were getting salaries as low as like five or $10,000 in the NWSL. And they didn't want that publicized. But, like, that's going to get news, right? That's going to get people outraged. And you can't have this protect everybody, this cocoon, right? You're either professional or you're not. And sometimes that's going to be hard. And I get that. But that's part of the taking off the kid gloves, right? And dealing with women's sports. Like, that's just part of it. So we know the stats on the fact that uh, these data analysis positions, et cetera, like Lindsay mentioned before, are overwhelmingly white and male, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people from marginalized groups breaking into the industry. So there are people out there doing the work, like Shireen, you have an example for us? I do. Uh, Namita Nandakumar of the Seattle Kraken NHL. This is the first time we've seen a racialized woman doing this kind of work. And it's great, particularly when you're trying to reframe and retool what hockey culture looks like. And then there's Brittany Donaldson of the Toronto Raptors. She's a former collegiate ball player who has a degree in statistics and actuarial sciences. She spent two seasons as a data analyst in their front office before she jumped to the bench as an assistant coach for the team, the youngest woman so far. She was 26 at the time. It's it's one of these two-pronged fights where people are, you know, using these pathways as entry points into the game and trying to diversify that, but also calling into question the use of of data in and of itself. Now, speaking of this lack of data on women's sports, I imagine, Lindsay, that the repercussions are not necessarily just around salaries and stuff like that, but in terms of like actual ability to get sponsorship, right? Like it it seems to me like there is a connectedness, right? It has like a ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I talk to when I'm doing some dives on merchandise and all this stuff and people point to the lack of data as a reason not to take risks on, you know, having more merchandise and selling more women's merchandise. So just like we talk about with investment and stuff, you know, the investment versus success of the sport itself It does. It goes into merchandise. It goes into sponsors. The fact that only 4% of, you know, I think sponsorship dollars go to women's sports, it's because people don't have the data in front of them to feel like they can take that risk. They want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And that goes with buying the rights for women's sports and um, just literally every single thing you can talk about, the lack of data is weaponized as a reason not to take a chance on women's sports. But if you don't take a chance, how are you going to get the data? (laughs) Right. I mean, I think it all leads me down to here. Like, perhaps my framing question isn't the right one. Perhaps the question is not whether data is good or bad, but rather it lies in how it's used, right? Because I think that we can see a few examples where it's used in ways that actually would do some of the work that we would be applauding within sports. Um, and there's a bit of a tension there, Jessica. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Shireen mentioned numbers don't lie, which is true, right? So we could take these numbers and we could compare two athletes and we could say this person does this thing better on the field. And so in a way, there's the meritocracy of sport. You can find it in the numbers, right? If you're just looking at them side by side. And that's great. But as soon as you add in any other cultural thing, the numbers become subjective in a way that is often terrible. So I think of Michael Sam 
in this regard, SEC Defensive Player of the Year, he's going to go in the second, third round of the draft. He comes out. He publicly discloses that he's gay, and suddenly he barely makes the draft. And everyone was justifying this because of his numbers, right? Suddenly, all the things that got him, all of the accolades, were the very things that made sense to why he should drop that far in the draft. And the rest of us are screaming homophobia. And it sucks that the numbers get used that way. I think a lot about black quarterbacks, right? We can look at their numbers on paper and be like, these are phenomenal quarterbacks, but then they're, we're told that they should be wide receivers, right? And we know that that's race. But then they can use these numbers and manipulate them in a way that tells, as Lindsay would, like tells the story that they want to tell us. And we're all, again, yelling racism. <laughs> but they can fall back on the sort of numbers don't lie. And I think that's a real tension with these statistics and these numbers because numbers are rigid until you apply any real context to them absolutely until they're not until they're not (laughs) not, right yeah exactly and and i think that example of black quarterbacks is so interesting because it's also talking about how Lindsay was talking about like how it becomes secular is like if your assumption about black quarterbacks is that they're not great passers they don't drop back they need to run so your offensive coordinator draws up plays multiple running plays to let them scramble over and over again so then their stats have a disproportionate amount of on the ground you know running stats it's very easy to be like see here's the pattern we told you all black quarterbacks are runners and scramblers and it's like it becomes a justification of that very false faulty premise in the first place and it's like well maybe if you don't assume that they can run and you actually just like let the design plays for other Mm -hmm. kind of you know, yard. So I think that's, you know, that is a really great example to keep in mind. And it also reminds me like in academia, like tenure math, right? How like your tenure file, maybe I shouldn't say any of this, but how your tenure file, like they can count articles one way. And then like, if they want to make some, you know, anyways, numbers are all alive. Fuzzy math. Fuzzy math. There you go. But we have seen some really interesting ways that statistics and math and data, like all of this have been used in sports, right? Yeah, we absolutely. One of the things that's interesting is, of course, we all know not just statistics breed sexism, but science as a whole, right, has for a long time ignored um, bodies that are not cisgender men. And so that has limited the data on those bodies. But finally, in the year like 2020, or maybe like, you know, 2018, we've started, you know, realizing that period tracking can be very useful for those who have periods in sports. Um, At the Women's World Cup, the Team USA used period tracking in order to help them. And this taboo subject has become less taboo. And I love this quote in a BBC article that was written by Nicola Smith, This quote is from Dr. Richard Burden, who is a technical lead at the English Institute of Sport. And he said, the menstrual cycle has long been viewed as a barrier to training performance. But if you flip it on its head, there is real potential to utilize hormone fluctuations to be more specific and precise about the training you do rather than just not training. So the more data we have, right, about the bodies and about different bodies, the better we can utilize exercise science to accommodate these bodies. What a thought. <laughs> what a thought oh my goodness! <laughs> and just a reminder, we have two previous interviews, one with Laisha Claridan on Diva Cup and Periods in episode 
67. And also, Kay Elston joined us on episode 160 from the menstruation-focused podcast, Vicious Cycles. So check those out for more about periods and sports. I just wanted to add in off of what Lynn's is saying about, there's a fantastic article by our friend Katie Wyatt in The Athletic, specifically talking about data and period tracking and explaining how Chelsea Women's Side used it and how there was a sports science company called Oracle that developed what's called the Fitter app, F-I-T-R, and you can use it. And what it does is it helps with prehab, rehab, and checks if you have pre-existing injuries that could be affected by your cycle. And it's just, I think it's really important to have. And just this idea that our bodies are affecting our physical performance is somehow novel. And I think <laughs> that it's just, it's, it's weird. And the Lionesses, the English women's team, was starting to look at this after Rio, actually. And Katie talks about this in the article after Rio 2016 and a less than stellar performance. So I think this is something that people are looking to and will look forward to and incorporate it. So it lessens the taboo. And this is something that's really key here. It's how is it taboo? And there's this really funny thing she actually says is that when she was younger and that she would look at the woman who played Doctor Who, who was Amy Pond. And she says, quote, Amy Pond must have periods at some point. And she still runs from or to danger and acts and does stunts. It doesn't have to stop me. Well, I, I think closing out, it got me really thinking about biometrics and the rise of biometrics in not just athletes, but in our daily lives. Like, it's no secret that I am fond of a certain fitness company. Um, but, you know, even before... <laughs> But even before them, you know, when I was at Orange Theory, like one of the things that I like about all of these things is that immediately on my phone after my workout, I get a graph, I get stats, I get steps, I get calorie counts, I get all of this breakdown, right? There's there's this way that I have in my palm or on my wrist with my Apple Watch data about how I sleep, how am I sleeping, how am I running, is my pace trending upwards? all of this stuff. And I imagine like this is something personally, like I love to see all the data. I love to see these graphs. But when me and Jessica were talking about this in our Apple Watch sleep detector and things like that, you also raised a really great point, Jessica, about like how people are taking other people's biometrics for their own kind of stuff. And that is that is terrifying. Yeah, I did the classic burn it all down move, which was take this thing that we love <laughs> and say, but wait a second. And I say that as I sit here with my Fitbit, I, it tracks my sleep every night, it tracks my steps. I love all that stuff. But I do get nervous when I think about how the bio data for athletes is going to be used because the systems in which athletes operate are so exploitative, right? And so in the US, I specifically worry about the fact that we don't have socialized health care and what does it mean to be handing over your medical data or your health data to anyone else other than you and like how that could fall back on you when we don't have, you know, when pre-existing conditions can really harm your ability to access medical care and have insurance. But then I also worry about like how a league would use it. Are they going to use, we just talked about how this math is fuzzy and fungible when it needs to be. So are they going to use it to drop you in the draft? Are they going to use it to make sure they don't have to pay you as much next year when you renew your contract? Those sorts of things. And then it brings me back to Texas Tech and that basketball team and that coach who was using mm. their heart rate, monitoring their heart rates, right? And then punishing them if they weren't able to sustain a ridiculously high and potentially dangerous heart rate. So I really do love 
bio data and I can see why athletes want it and they will use it and they will get better. At the same time, we do have to be, I think, incredibly careful about who's getting access to that data and how in the end they're going to use it. Well, as you can see, flamethrowers, there is no simple and quick takeaways from these this fungible and fuzzy math, these stats and these data, but it doesn't behoove any of us to ignore it because as we've also documented, it's here. It's around us and we're consuming it intentionally or not. So consider this an opening conversation of a topic that I'm sure that we'll continue to explore in a myriad of ways. Um, Okay, bye. Just a reminder, our interview this week is Brenda chatting with Crystal Dunn. Check out a preview of what you can expect from this conversation on Thursday. We're in a very unique time now where we as Black women feel like we should not be asking permission for some things. We should feel like um, this is how we feel. This is our voice. And therefore, you're kind of either really with us or you're just, you know, you're off to the side. And I think the NBSL is, is realizing that we can no longer really sit back and let them kind of take the wheel. It's actually our time now to be in the forefront and, and really drive these conversations. And I think they responded really well and they understand that we don't want just anyone speaking for us. So as we all know, 2020 has already reshaped how we work. It's almost over, uh, but businesses across the globe have been challenged to be their most efficient. And guess what friends, Indeed is here to help. Indeed, what is Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore. It helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause at any time. This is my favorite. As someone who forgets to cancel things and is very ADHD, um, Amir, can you relate? Uh-huh. Do, yes. Do you have, do you have yes. a few things on your account that just like, oops. Keep going. <laughs> yes. So there yes. are no long-term contracts. No long-term contracts. You um, don't have to end up with zone for a year. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, Shireen. And also hope to zone is not a sponsor of us. <laughs> uh, so instant match. Now, this is an exciting thing. Uh, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly is instant match. It delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria. And you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed... <laughs> Okay, this is a, I like this line. Making indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Woo! Here's our call to action right now. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Shireen, what's the credit? I have no idea. It is a free $75 credit. Amira, what's the credit? It's a free $75 credit. Thank you. At Indeed. God, I was ready and you didn't call well, wait, me. Or I, Jessica. I thought Jessica okay. was okay, going to do ready. it. I'm ready. Indeed.com slash blue wire. This is their best available offer anywhere. Jess, what is that website? Uh-oh. <laughs> Indeed.com. <laughs> 
is indeed.com slash blue wire yes. indeed.com slash blue wire i have it indeed.com go there right now before you forget it um because we forget things uh the offer is valid through december 31st terms and conditions apply okay we definitely just did an entire segment on data and sports and did not talk about betting you might be wondering why. Wow. <laughs> it's because we don't know anything about betting. I don't know how many times I can keep telling y'all that. I have no idea. I keep telling you that. I keep telling my uncle that. Like, I don't know how many more ways we could say. I don't know. But again, if you are somebody who likes to bet and knows what to bet on and what all those numbers mean, I can say, I can pretend, I'd be like, take the over, take the under. I go against the spread. They're negative five. I'll take them and the points. I can pretend a lot. But the people you really want to turn to is bet online because they give you every possible chance to win this season. They have game spreads and totals and teams and players and coaching props and prop bets are a thing that I'm going to say. Again, I don't know what that means, but Bet Online does. So go there. They give you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their um, bonuses, wager on wins, division championship features all day, every day. So please head on over to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show, the burn pile. Lindsay? Can you kick us off? Yeah, it's another tale of COVID and college football. I just, (laughs) I don't know how to keep putting this on the burn pile, but I also don't know how to leave it off because the situation just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So this week, 15 week 11 games were postponed or rescheduled. That includes four games in the SEC, games featuring three of the top five teams in the country, Alabama at LSU, Ohio State at Maryland, and Texas A&M at Tennessee. The Pac-12 has been hit especially hard. The Pac-12 entered the weekend of the 14th and 15th, having canceled as many football games as it has played which is just staggering um arizona state and utah have been hit particularly hard and both of their games against cal and ucla were canceled or postponed or whatever um to the point where now we're gonna have a college football game on sunday because the pac-12 couldn't just cancel the weekend they decided that cal and ucla would play on uh sunday so that's happening but let's just talk about arizona state and utah so according to the salt lake tribune there were 17 conferred positives among utah football players coaches and staff and there have been 28 members of the program who have tested positive or are in quarantine utah is yet to play a game On November 28th, they could potentially play ASU, but Matt Berry at ESPN reports a situation within the ASU football program is dire. The facility is closed. An entire side of the ball has it. Six staff members are positive, and they're really just at the beginning of the outbreak. Someone told Matt Berry, this is bad, really, really, really bad. And I think what we're seeing here is... We don't know exactly how bad because college football programs aren't opening up. They're not being transparent about the data. But this is happening at a time when on November 14th, Saturday, November 14th, there were at least 
1,210 new coronavirus deaths in the United States and 159,021 new cases. Over the past week, there has been an average of 145,712 cases per day. That is an increase of 80% from the average just two weeks ago. We're in the winter now. People are getting indoors more and we're dealing with this worse. And college football is just an example of that. The Ivy League canceled its winter sports this week. And I think that's a good idea because winter sports, while they're smaller, you know, you're not dealing with football-sized teams, they're indoors. We're about to go to basketball being played indoors. And as excited as I am about basketball, I'm terrified. I'm terrified for everything. I'm terrified for our country. And I'm terrified for these students their bodies and their health and their future being put on the line while these coaches rake in millions. And I'm so scared for everyone. And I'm just devastated, I think. So let's do a cathartic burn. 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 Can't believe we have to keep burning this. I know. Um, well, college sports aren't the only things uh, bungling their COVID response, right, Shireen? Yeah, I'm going to talk about this report that came up from Thief Pro. And for those of you that don't know what Thief Pro is, the initial stand for Fédération Internationale des Associations Footballeuses Professionnelles. So basically, it just means professional football players. And so what they did was they put out, and I'm quoting here from Stephanie Yang, friend of the show, her piece in All for Eleven. And they surveyed the 62 member unions and that exposed quote the fragility of the women's football ecosystem unquote due to the pandemic so we're talking about younger leagues we're talking about women's academies we're talking about soccer opportunities solidified sponsorship concrete contracts lack of contracts and just lack of consistent investment here and what seems to be happening is that people are using and when i say people it's really a situation where men are sort of using the pandemic time to make an excuse for lack of supporting women's football. And of those surveyed, 34% said, the union said that they offered some kind of support, 34% said that, or physical well-being. Only 16% were offering any type of support for mental health, and 40% had absolutely zero support. Those numbers are terrible. And some unions also reported that there was absolutely no communication about the pandemic at all. And in one thing we know that communication is key here. And this is a time that's awful. And to what Lindsay said, it can render a lot of panic and uncertainty. But not having communication from the higher ups would be extremely frustrating and devastating. So Thief Pro report also mentioned that due to this, some women may be forced to retire early. And what that is, is it's terrible because of a lack of financial, lack of support and consistency. And I think that this is terrible. And it, again, points to that when push comes to shove, it's always a woman that get pushed and shoved. And I hate all of it. I want to burn it all down. Burn. 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 I'll go next. Um, many were shocked this week when the Texans announced the firing of PR director Amy Palchik. Um, which has just been a clusterfuck of just like, it's been ridiculous. 
partially starting because it was unclear who made this call and they are a mess right now. They have an intern GM and then it, you know, the team president was like, no, no, it was my call. Whoever made the call was probably making a really dumb call. Further bungling this response, Palchik reported that she was told that she was no longer a quote unquote cultural fit. (laughs) What? What culture would that be fitting into? Now, this comes just a few days after she's tweeting positive things about the outcome of the election. So many people speculated that it had something to do with that, which would just be hypocritical given that Bob McNair infamously walked into the locker room after the 2012 election and was very sad and talked openly about that. So it doesn't seem like politics would be, you know, off of the table. But what else could cultural fit possibly be pointing to? This is somebody who is ridiculously good at her job. And that is one of the things that has made the fallout even more terrible for the Houston Texans is that players, media members, people who are usually quiet on a number of topics rushed, rushed to Twitter to praise the work of Palchik. And that's the thing is like when you have these questions, all we can go off of is the words and the words that we're left with ringing in our ears are cultural fit. Pray tell what that culture is is. These words that you're using when you can't approach her work ethic, you can't approach her her knowledge, you can't do that. So you just fall back on culture. This is not even subtle, right? This is the policing of the boundaries of employment around sports. It's getting rid of a competent person in grasping for ways to justify the action. The best you can come up with is cultural fit. It's despicable. I wish the best for Amy Palchik. I am sorry that, you know, she talked about this being the most humiliating day of her life. And that humiliation alone makes me want to light a match. We wish you the best. We are holding you up as to so many people. The ringing endorsements from around the sporting world should tell you of how many hands are against your back and people in your corner. As for the Texans particularly Roots, the president, and Easter B, the GM, they can, as I like to tell everybody, they can fuck right the hell off. And we here will burn it down. All right, Jessica, please take us home. So I'm going to be talking about emotional and physical abuse, so take care as needed. Earlier this month, Olga Sharapova, the ex-girlfriend of tennis player Alexander Zverev, who's currently ranked seventh in the world and was in the U.S. Open final recently, She talked to Ben Rothenberg of Racket Magazine. Olya, as she's known to her friends, says she was in a relationship with Zverev for about 13 months, during which he became increasingly more abusive both emotionally and physically. Her count is harrowing and corroborated by others. Zverev was demanding of her time, controlling and possessive. Olya told Rothenberg that the emotional abuse turned physical at the 2019 U.S. Open. She says, quote, It wasn't our normal fight. It was really scary. I was screaming, and because of that, he threw me down onto the bed, took a pillow, and then sat on my face. I couldn't breathe for some time, and I'm just trying to get out of it. She did get away, barefoot, and a family member had to come help her. Olya says Zverev learned in New York that he could control her with physical violence. He would push her and twist her arms during fights. Eventually, she says, he punched her in the face in Geneva. Zverev has repeatedly denied Olya's account, but he's also acted like a real asshole about it. 
He was runner-up at the Paris Masters event a few days after the Racket Magazine piece was published, and in his on-court speech following the match, he said, quote, There's going to be a lot of people that try to wipe that smile off my face. But under this mask, I'm smiling brightly. Everything is great in my life now. More recently, before the ATP finals, Zverev read a prepared statement off his phone that took the report much more seriously, and again, he denied everything. The tennis world has been pretty quiet, especially the ATP, the org that oversees the men's tour. I think it's important to point out that Olya herself was a former junior tennis player, so she knows a fair amount of players on the tour, and she says a lot of this abuse took place during tennis tournaments. As Tumani Cariol wrote for The Guardian this weekend, quote, tennis's position so far is questionable. I think he was being nice. Zvera's response in Paris and the overall silence around this within the tennis world is distressing. Her account is horrific. And I just want to burn all of this. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to highlight some torchbearers of the week doing the work and lighting a way to a better sporting future. Let's start with some honorable mentions. Jess, who do we have as our truth teller of the week? We have Sam Sachs, founder of No Hate Zone, an org dedicated to ending hate and racism. Sachs called out the NCAA for its inaction on passing rules to help foster diversity and inclusion. He said, NCAA President Mark Emmerich, quote, led me down this path, told me what to do, encouraged me what to do, and it's a complete and utter failure. Now what? Either stop talking about what you're going to do or do it. He went on to describe the NCAA as, quote, a white supremacy structure that's unwilling to give up its power. That sounds right and true to us. Hear, hear. All right, uh, Shireen, who's our charitable juggler of the week? Imogen Papworth Heidel is a young English footballer, and Imogen from Hoxton near Cambridge did over 7.1 million keepy-uppies. And a keepy-uppy is literally juggling. She didn't do them all in a row. She did them consecutively, but 7.1 million of them. She's raised more than 10,000 pounds for nine local charities. And we see you and we raise you up. That's incredible. Lindsay, who's our tenacious climber of the week? Emily Harrington became the first woman to complete the free ascent of the Golden Gate route at El Capitan in Yosemite. At 1.34 a.m. on election night, she began her free climb of Golden Gate. And over the course of the next 21 hours, 13 minutes, and 51 seconds, she motored up the 3,000-foot line. Whew. Amazing. It really is. Can you imagine? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, Literally no. Literally literally not at all. (laughs) All right. And a big drum roll, please. Our torchbearer of the week is Kim Ng, who was just hired by the Miami Marlins to be their next general manager. She becomes the first female and the first Asian American to be GM of a major league baseball team. She brings 30 plus years of experience in baseball. Time has been spent with the Chicago White Sox, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the last nine, 10 years in the MLB's commissioner offices. In her role, she's assisted in winning eight postseason appearances, six league championships, three World Series. Frankly, this is a move that is about a decade or more overdue, but it's something that we absolutely love to see. She said in a quote um, announcing this hire that when she got into this business, it seemed unlikely that a woman would leave a Major League Baseball team, but I am dogged in the pursuit of my goals. 
We raise you up. You light the way. If you want to get just a taste of how inspiring people around sports and particularly in baseball felt about this, please go look on Twitter of the outpouring of love and support. Jessica um, had a wonderful thread of just a reminder about girls in baseball in all the many ways, both historically and now. Please go check that out. And also keep an eye out. We will have an upcoming hot take featuring voices talking about how important and historic this is. So congrats, Kim, Madam General Manager. We see you. You are our torchbearer of the week. All right, y'all, we made it. What is good in your lives? Lindsay? Oh, I just realized I was going first, and I don't really, um, I'm having a, a, a tough time again this week. I will say my Trash Reality TV is really doing a great job. <laughs> um, first of all, Amira, have you seen the new 90 Day Fiance? I haven't. I'm uh, so behind. Well, well you, you don't, just the trailer. You just need to watch the trailer oh, and like, read up that. on the couple. So that's good. This is for the new season? Yeah, there's a new season coming out soon. I don't know when. I haven't watched it. If it's out already, I haven't watched it. I've just read up on the new couples, and I'm so excited. And also, though... Um, <laughs> I haven't watched Real Housewives in a really long time, but all this gossip about the Real Housewives of Utah has me dying. So I'm going to add that into my rotation this week. Oh, Salt Lake City. Yes, Salt Lake City. Thank you. Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. We've got some Mormon drama. And I am, I'm here for it. And and look, my, my Mormon friends and my Utah friends have given me complete permission to enjoy the trash. Just enjoy it. So I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. My what's good this week has been all the Beyonce Peloton mashup content. No surprise here. I jumped over on the Sound of Victory podcast to chat with Courtney about this historic partnership and what it means for HBCUs who are all getting two years, uh, for 10 of them who are getting two years of free digital Peloton memberships as part of this partnership and a pipeline to internships. I'm very excited about that, and I'm very sore from the amazing workouts that have occurred this week. And then I also finally started the Queen's Gambit, and um, I am very excited. Me too. Uh, Love it. It's tremendous. And on Jessica's recommendation, I started it. But my brother was like, wait for me to watch it. And then Jess was like, it's riveting. And I was like, to hell with him. I'm watching it right now. Jessica, did I take your what's good? You want me to go? Mm-hmm. Did I take your what's good? You totally did. We finished <laughs> it yesterday, The Queen's Gambit. And I just want to say Anya Taylor-Joy, she was the lead in the recent adaptation of Emma, which is my least favorite of the Jane Austens, but I actually loved that adaptation. I thought that was great. And she is just spectacular. And I cannot get over how riveting it is to watch these chess matches when I literally don't know what's happening. Like, I know enough about chess to understand that, like how the pieces move but I can't watch the board and understand what these people are doing and my and I have listened to a podcast where a former chess player explains that it's very good chess that it's very accurate whatever's happening but credit to the show that I cared so deeply about what's happening and something I literally knew nothing about my other what's good is that in a few days I'm going to turn 40 so it's my birthday week and I'm excited about 
the cake, and I'm pretty sure that Aaron's going to be hamburgers for my birthday dinner, which is very important to me. It's my favorite food. So um, yeah, that's that is very fun. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's the week of Jessica Luther. I'm so excited to celebrate you all week. <laughs> all right, Shirini. Happy Diwali to everybody. Um, I heard some firecrackers going off in my neighborhood last night, and I was like excited to hear that. Happiness, joy, light to you all. I had a fantastic Thursday. I watched Bend It Like Beckham with Martin, with our producer Tressa, with Brenda, and with her doctor Jessica Stites Moore, who is a friend of Brenda and also a film Latinista. She's a historian as well. And it, so it was amazing. We ended up being on the call for like three hours and ended up taking some deep dives into my love life, ironically. That was a bit uh, a bit of a weird turn. I also wanted to say that because of Jessica, I found Alicia Rise IG, her Instagram account, and her videos are hysterically funny. And I'm really enjoying that. She's a romance writer that Jessica has been talking about since before I met Jessica. So I just really like that. I'm going down, I'm finding a lot of joy and happiness and humor and intelligence in these places, especially IG. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. And last but not least, hit up, Martin. It's Jessica's birthday. I am very excited. Let's play Sana Halwa Ya Gamil, which is my favorite version. It's the Egyptian version of Happy Birthday. Jessica, we love this day because it's the day that you came into the world. And I am so happy. And this is not the celebration we thought we'd be having, but I will take it anyway. You are loved. I love you all so much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All righty, y'all. What we are watching this week, well, there's a few different things. First, um, men's tennis. The ATP finals will be towards the end of this week. So like a day or two after this episode's post, you will be into the final rounds of the ATP. Um, Shireen really wants you to watch some darts. So from the November 16th all the way to the 24th, the Grand Slam of darts will be happening in England. So I have no idea how to watch it or where to watch it, but darts will be happening Go out and consult your local TV guides or, you know, illegal streams of it. There's also some golf, both the PGA and the LPGA. The RSM Classic, the men will be playing over there and the Pelicans Women's Championship will also be happening later this week, actually this entire week. So check that out. Plus, the Nation Leagues are going to do their World Cup qualifiers. This is the men that we're talking about. But that is starting midweek. And so if you want to check out Albania or Armenia or Estonia or Norway or Denmark or Italy or Slovakia, Iceland, all of these teams will start in the Nations League um, in their march to the World Cup. We also have more football going on. Um, Bundesliga, Serie A continues. And also, if you missed our watch party with the Manchester Derby this past week, we got up super early, 7.30 on the East Coast. We had flamethrowers joining us on the West Coast at 4.30 in the morning there. Me, Shireen, and Lindsay, Martin stopped by, and we hung out with flamethrowers. We watched the Derby together. It turned out to be a really good game. And uh, they are meeting each other again midweek and so if you missed the game the first time you'll have a chance to see Man U and uh, Manchester City meet again 
on the 18th. So check your listings for all of these fun things. Much to watch indeed. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for joining us. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down wherever you get you po- your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. This episode was produced by the one and only Martin Kessler. Uh, shout out to Shelby Weldon on graphics and Tressa Vierstig, who will produce Thursday's episode. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website as always burnitalldownpod.com for info about the show links transcripts for each episode you can also email us directly from the site still use that cold fall flames this is the last week or two that you can use it to get 15 percent off your merchandise orders so get it in get cozy with a blanket or a hoodie get a cup to drink your mold cider with from all of us at burn it all down i'm amira rose davis thank you so much and we'll see you next week flamethrowers finn Fane. 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 Tuke. Beanie. I feel like Shireen has been waiting this entire time <laughs> to say Tuke. <laughs>